Hello comrades, welcome back to the show. In this episode, we will learn more about European imperialism, Spaisiba. Today is set up a lot of the context of what's going on and European interaction around the world. Because this goes hand in hand with the growth of industrialization in a lot of cases. And we'll talk about why that is here in just a little bit. But we probably won't get into China actually until tomorrow. That'll be the first one that we talk about because that's China has a big change in its role in the world, I guess, as we get to the 1800s. And we'll talk about that as we go through here. We know going into Unit 5 that we're starting to see more of a European-dominated world, really all different regions of the world. The Americas have just won their independence. We talked about that with our last chapter, um, or two chapters ago, I guess. But they, the Europeans still have a pretty big presence there, economically speaking. And we're really talking about Western powers. So these industrialized powers, one of the big themes of Unit 5, really, the industrialized world is really starting to dominate the non-industrialized world. The industrialized world happens to be Europe and the United States at this time. And Japan's gonna join that too. And so we'll talk about that really with this chapter and the transition there. And so I won't get into too much specifics about imperialism yet today, mainly just enough to provide context and we'll talk more about um, imperialism next week. All right, so what we have going on during the 1800s, the world, I guess, as, as a whole, is going to go through a series of threats, some internal and some external. External ones coming from imperialism, but even internally, places like the Ottoman Empire, they're really struggling coming into the 1800s. They're having economic issues of their own, and you know, trade is pretty much completely abandoned them at this point. The Europeans, even from the get-go in Unit 4, had started to bypass the Ottoman Empire with the whole transatlantic economy thing. But, you know, the Europeans are building empires of their own that are specifically designed to bypass people like the Ottomans and to attack people like the Chinese and others. So we're going to see that being the external threat there. All right, so we have internal problems there and then the big, powerful, expanding European nations. Now, we'll talk about this imperialism and those kind of things, but even though some places, like China, you know, China's not really ever colonized during this time, but it's starting to be dominated culturally, economically, those things about that. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. All right, but most everywhere else around the world is falling under European control. If you look at Africa, Pretty much every corner, well, I guess every place except for two different places, fall under European control. There's a little place over here, Liberia, that's free, and then a place over here, Ethiopia, or Abyssinia, let's call that, that's going to stay free. But everywhere else in Africa falls under a European power, whether it's France over this way, the British down here, the uh, Germans are kind of sprinkled different all over the place there. But everywhere else in Africa is going to fall under European control. Um, the Ottomans technically are independent, but they're going to be dominated economically <coughs> by the uh, Europeans. 
And India is going to be directly under European control. The Southeast Asian areas, um, and I guess the islands in the South Pacific, Australia, and all these others, directly under European control. So we're, we're seeing global domination here by these industrialized European powers in Unit 5. That's a major theme here of Unit 5. All right, so a couple of different things that the Europeans have that the others don't. We're seeing growing industrial societies, which provides a huge technological advantage for the Europeans. This started in Unit 4 with the Scientific Revolution, but by Unit 5, the technological gap is, well, it's huge going into Unit 5. Even between Europe and the other, because traditionally China is probably either China or some of the Arab worlds back in the day, I guess, have always been the huge technological producers. And they've always had the technological edge over the, their neighbors. <clears throat> That's now shifted to Europe. And in these industrialized societies, <coughs> they have machines that can do all these different things that the other areas of the world can't even imagine doing. And that really starts to show up militarily as well. Because within Europe, you have all these different nations that are in competition with each other. So they are trying to apply this machinery and all this technology to military as well. And so we're going to see things like the machine guns and all these things, the, the Maxim guns, that are going to be well used to pretty much conquer these parts of the world. You know, the saying in Africa really becomes, well, I guess of all things go poorly for us, we always have the Maxim gun to fall back on. And they use it. You know, these entire civilizations, tribes, whatever, they start charging the British forces, they pull out the Maxim gun, and they all are gone within minutes. It's a huge technological advantage that the British have. All right? The British have also pretty much staked out their corners in every different region of the planet with trade. You know, even starting in Unit 4, we start to see, you know, the... The British getting their feet in the door in South Asia. The Dutch starting to take over some of this carrying trade. The Europeans are getting involved by heat. This time, the Europeans have better ships, faster ships, bigger ships, steam-powered ships that can move so quickly and so swiftly. Uh, railroads and all this stuff that they can do that others can't. And then there's always the need for the Europeans to expand their established missionaries um, or missions or anything like that there that just bring their culture. Pretty soon with imperialism we'll call that you know the white man's burden. We'll talk about that just a little bit. Alright? So imperialism this is kind of a new wave and it's not brand new in Europe. We'll see you know you, you'll be asked at some point to make some comparisons between the mercantile empires of the Atlantic economy from period four with the imperial, or I guess imperialism, of unit five. And there's a lot of similarities and some differences here too. But fundamentally, it serves the same purpose. A colony in the mercantilism worlds of the Atlantic in the fourth period, or fourth time period, 
What's the purpose of a colony there? Somebody tell me. Two reasons to have colonies. What are they? Resources and... What's the other purpose of a colony? A marketplace, exactly. So we're going to take the resources, extraction, extraction, and then we need somebody to sell these finished goods too, right? What do we never allow the colonies to do themselves? Manufacture these goods to trade with anybody else. We always want to make sure if I'm England or if I'm France or whatever, that the goods are coming back home, we manufacture them, and then sell them back there. Don't ever give them the power to do that themselves. Well, imperialism is kind of the same fundamentals there. We're going to create colonies around the world for the purpose of extraction of goods, natural resources, all that kind of stuff. And then we really want these as great marketplaces. Probably the emphasis on marketplaces is even bigger in imperialism than it was before. Because mercantilism really, there are marketplaces there, I'm not saying that, but they're not huge, great marketplaces. For the most part, you're trying to bring stuff back to Europe that you don't have access to. Sugar, cotton, tobacco, stuff that we can sell across Europe. And whatever's left, we can sell over to the New World as well. Well, here, the most populated, populous areas are places like China and India and some of these other areas that are outside of Europe. So our major interest in China is not really to go get colonies to extract goods, but the huge wealthy population is there. So we're going to really be interested in getting access to these marketplaces. So that's why we're going to see imperialism different in China than what it is in Africa. Because, yeah, there's some market, I mean, there's people in Africa, but most of the wealth from Africa is in its natural resources, gold, ivory, silver, some of that, oh, gold mainly, diamonds, but not really in its marketplaces. So we're going to see direct colonial control in places like Africa, and then spheres of influence for control of marketplaces in places like East Asia and China. Again, we'll talk more about that a little bit later. But that's what we're going to start to see here. And you know, you see the depiction of British imperialism here, because the British probably do this better than anybody else. By the end of the 1800s, the saying is, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Because it's so vast, it's in every corner of every time zone around the world. You know, you can go all the way from the South Pacific Islands and Australia over to Southeast Asia, have a presence there with uh, Burma and those areas, uh, to South Asia, to Africa, to Europe, I mean, everywhere. Even some sugar islands in the New World. So they have a presence everywhere. Then. But the French, are, they have a huge colonial empire as well. The Germans are building one, so there's competition there. Alright? But there's two different approaches. A colony, which is what we see mainly in Africa and South Asia, and a sphere of influence, which is mainly in East Asia. <coughs> All right. Now motivations, you know this already. Raw materials is what we just talked about. And it's even a bigger deal because industrialization is at an all-time high here. Back in Unit 4, we weren't really industrialized yet. 
you know, pretty much Unit 4 comes to an end when the British start to industrialize. But there is manufacturing and there's that, that kind of stuff. But a lot of the colonies in the New World are agricultural in nature. Cotton can be used for some industrial stuff type stuff, but sugar, coffee, tobacco, these things are cash crops in and of themselves. Not really used to manufacture something bigger. Well, with imperialism, we pretty much have the capacity and the capability to produce whatever we want to produce. As much as we want to produce. We just need goods to do it. And if I'm Great Britain, pretty recently, 1776 or whatever, I lost my cotton producing nations or colonies. So I gotta go get some more, because I can't produce it in my own island. So I'm gonna go to places like Egypt, places like India, and start increasing my influence there, getting cotton from those areas. Because I have these huge textile factories, I need cotton to produce in those textiles. All right, so this motivation here, motive number one, is an even bigger deal for these industrialized nations than it was before. And because this is a bigger deal, we can produce more things, this becomes a bigger deal too. So imperialism is an even bigger, I guess an even bigger idea of mercantilism. It's not as much controlled by the state as maybe mercantilism was. It's a little bit more free market aspect, but this gives access to all kinds of cool stuff there. And now we need places to sell this. That's where China comes into play. All right? And then the other side, nationalism. This is kind of, this is the cultural side. Nationalism is becoming a big thing. We talked about this with the French Revolution. France really becomes a national power. We start to see this. Well, now, by the 20th century, nationalism has turned into this competitive thing between nations that really starts to show up. Well, it turns into a form of racism. You know, I'm so proud of my nation and my ethnicity and those kind of things. Mine's better than yours. And then it turns even further to say that there are master races and there are superior races, and that means there are inferior races. Especially as you start to see Europe, well, I guess European interaction around the world, you can really start to see this show up because the treatment of these other people outside of Europe is not always very good. And in some cases, the worst in history. If you go to the Belgians in Congo, in the Congo regions, it's some of the worst slavery that you've ever seen before, as far as the treatment of the people that are there and the extracting those kind of things. And they feel justified in doing this because they feel like certain races are better than others. And I'm not saying that everybody in Europe did, but it was becoming a prevailing thing. And you have other outside factors that are going on here too. Middle of the 1800s. <coughs> Uh, Charles Darwin, you guys have heard of Charles Darwin, right? What's he known for? Evolution, right? And this idea of natural selection, survival of the fittest, and those kind of things. Well, he's not writing about this. He's, he's a biologist. He's writing about species and things that he um, observes with this uh, species. And he writes all this down. But he writes about 
the fact that there are certain species that are better fit to survive than others. And the others that are not, nature selects for extinction, this idea of natural selection. Well, he doesn't write anything about societies and this and stuff. But other people that are reading Darwin's theories of biology start to apply those to societies. And they're taking this notion of nationalism and they're applying it to Darwin's mentalities and they're saying, well, the same thing could be true when you look at not just species of animals, but races of humanity. And they start saying, they try to bring a scientific argument into this racism and say that there are certain races that are better fit to survive than others. And then you have other people that are writing, Thomas Malthus, for example, I'm not saying he's directly responsible for this, but or that's what he's writing about, but you guys have heard of Thomas Malthus, right? What's the theme of his writing? And in Europe, it's becoming a reality. You have too many pieces of people for the amount of resources available. And in Europe, it's already becoming true because the cities are overflowing. You read about Manchester, the strength that's coming there, right? That's happening in every corner of Europe. Population booming, urbanization, all that kind of stuff. So people are leaving, they're immigrating to the new world, they're going all different places. So we already know that Thomas Malthus is right and the fact that resources are running thin. Well, here's the deal. If resources are running short, who's going to survive? It's going to be the fittest race to survive. So I'm somewhat justified if I'm a European, whatever. Let's say I'm a, I'm a Belgian, and I'm going to the Congo. Well, if it's between these locals surviving and my surviving, I'm the fitter race. This is the mentality. I'm not saying this is my fault. But that's their thoughts. And so I'm justified in getting whatever I need out of Africa because na nature might select these people to be extinct. They're taking that Darwinian approach to that. And that being applied to society is called social Darwinism. That becomes one of the big driving factors behind imperialism is this mentality that some races are better than others. And when it comes down to one, access to resources, well, survival of the fittest. If you can't stop us, nature's gonna select you for extinction. It becomes very cut and dry like that, and cutthroat. And that's just the way it is, all right? And so that's what they start to do. And the proof that there is a fitter race, they believe, is in the fact that we're able to do this stuff. We have better technology, smarter, um, our culture's better, more, all these different things are the nationalist approach. And that turns into, you know, hyper-nationalism turns into racism in a lot of cases. But there's the other side of that too. So there's the side of social Darwinism of we're better, there's a better race, there's a master race, survival of the fittest. But then there's the other side. Our race is so much better, it's also our job to go <coughs> help the others. Whether they want it or not, it's our job to bring our <coughs> advantages to them. We're gonna go make them European. The people in India, or the people in Africa, the people wherever, 
they are beneath us, let's give them some of our advantages, our medicine, our language, our religion, our culture. Whether they want it or not, we're going to take it to them. All right? That, uh, Richard Kipling writes a poem called The White Man's Burden. And that's what he's talking about there. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. All right, so European imperialism here. We know about the technological advances. Well, there's another thing that happens pretty recently here, too, which is kind of underrated in some cases. If you think about the age of exploration back in Unit 4, who really dealt, who, who went and discovered a lot of this coast of Africa? Do you remember? Spain went to the New World. Portugal, right? Now, Portugal, it's in their names, right? They built a port empire. They didn't really go inland in Africa. Why? They obviously knew Africa was a pretty big place. They knew it had a lot of wealth because gold had been traded out of West Africa for centuries at that point. Yeah. Yeah, but not if you come from West Africa. The Portuguese didn't come through the Mediterranean to the Nile, right? They went down along the west coast of Africa, long way away from the Nile. And, and all of the Unit 4, you know, the big trade coming out of West Africa, the slave trade, right, in the, in the economy, economy. The Europeans never went beyond the port cities. In some cases, never even got off the boat. They didn't go gather the slaves. They didn't do that kind of stuff. The, there were slaving empires in West Africa, and they would conquer other uh, tribes or other civilizations and sold those into slavery to the Europeans. So the Europeans didn't have to go inland. Why did they not do that? Right? Malaria was a big thing. So, in essence, the mosquitoes were the big defenders of Africa for a long time, right? Not really. But um, they, people were getting sick, and they decided it was not worth going in and ever discovering the other parts of Africa. Well, now they've, with the scientific revolution and advancements in medicine and science and stuff, they've developed vaccinations and cures and those kind of things to these diseases, to malaria, so it's not a fatal thing anymore. So we're going to start to see Africa being opened up. And Africa is going to be discovered. And they're going to go in and the Europeans are going to start to figure out what's there and all the wealth that's there. And they're going to really start getting involved there. So we're going to see a couple different things there. So we talked about the perceptions of others. And they're starting to bring science into play here. And a lot of Darwin's theories are being applied. And we're going to start to see a scientific approach to racism and scientific justifications for superior races and inferior races, those kind of things. A lot of what we just talked about. But racial superiority. And a hierarchy of humans, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Ranking different ethnicities. In the superior and inferior. Using science. Alright, and then the other side, the white man's burden. A civilizing mission to civilize the world. 
Make them as European as possible, whether they like it or not. You can read some of the poems. See how the thought and those kind of things that are going on in Europe at the time are affecting what's, what's happening and imperialism. Again, we'll talk more about the specifics of imperialism next week. I just want you to get somewhat of the context that's driving it because that's going to severely affect how China, how the Ottomans, how Japan, and how all these are really interacting with Europe. All right? And this idea of social Darwinism becomes a huge... I guess a huge philosophical mindset with Europe as it's dealing with these other regions and these other areas. And some of it, you know, you, you've had the argument back and forth, it's kind of a chicken or the egg argument, but does racism come out of the idea of, you know, enslaving other people or slavery, or is that a product of racism? And, you know, you can, you can argue either way there, but that starts to show up here as well. All right, now, we're not going to talk about China until tomorrow, so we'll call that quits for the day. And we'll get into the different regions, China and Ottoman Empire tomorrow, and Meiji Restoration Hello comrades, thank you for tuning in. In next episode, we will talk more about capitalist pig China, Dasvidanya.